baking cakes, and a road trip to the beach. It's coming up on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. I am your host, Jake Downs, with Patrick Wales on the back end production. This is a show where we work to bridge literacy research into practice, and I am very glad to have you with us for this episode. If this is your first time with the show and you enjoy the episode, I would appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you receive this content. That will help others find the show. And if this isn't your first episode and you've been around a while, we'd appreciate it if you shared this episode with a friend or colleague that you feel may benefit. If you feel so inclined, we would also love a small donation to help keep the show running. A couple bucks goes a long way to help with operating costs. You can go to teachingliteracypodcast.com, click on About Your Host, and there is a link to donate securely via PayPal. I am absolutely thrilled to have two previous guests join me again. We are talking with Dr. Margaret Vaughn and Dr. Seth Parsons about their new book entitled Accelerating Learning Recovery for All Students. Core Principles for Getting Literacy Growth Back on Track. I thoroughly enjoyed the book. I thought it was a great addition to my library. And as you'll see, Dr. Vaughn and Dr. Parsons have a really great perspective on things like developing a school action plan and developing teams within a school to help support student learning and partnering with communities. So if this episode resonates with you, I recommend finding the book and grabbing a copy of it. Also, if you like this episode, you'll also want to check out previous episodes I've done with Dr. Vaughn and Dr. Parsons. Seth Parsons I had on the show on episode 24. We talked about their Principles of Effective Literacy book, which is an excellent edited volume, very teacher-friendly. I have one on the shelf behind me that I refer to frequently. And Dr. Vaughn I've had on the show several times. Episode 31, we talked about teacher visioning. Episode 9, we talked about student agency. And episode 8, we talked about adaptive teaching. So both have been friends of the show pretty much since its inception and very glad to have them on the show with us today. If you listen to those episodes, you'll notice that some of the previous themes are also present within what we talk about today as well. I hope you enjoy the conversation I had with Dr. Vaughn and Dr. Parsons, and make sure afterward to stick around for Jake's take on the topic. Dr. Margaret Vaughn and Dr. Seth Parsons, welcome to the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Thank you. So I've had both of you on the show before um, several times. I think I think between both of you, perhaps four episodes. So you're you're becoming frequent flyers on the show, which is a great a great thing because you have so much to contribute. Uh, Today we're talking about your recently released book. It's entitled "Accelerating Learning Recovery for All Students: Core Principles for Getting Literacy Growth Back on Track," and that's published through Guilford Press. So before we jump into the book, can you provide a brief overview of who you are, where you're at, and perhaps a sketch of a recent project that folks so, might I'm be Margaret interested Vaughan. in? I'm Margaret Vaughn. I'm at Washington State University. Um, I'm a professor there, um, and that's over in Pullman, Washington, Washington State. Um, and so thanks again for having us on. And a recent project that I've been working on is focused on student agency. And so... Um, I've been working with some international colleagues and we've been trying to validate uh, an instrument for agency there. And that's in, I guess, Italy and uh, Norway and Ireland and some other places. We're just trying to capture that in, 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 in the work we're doing. 
Uh, hello, I'm Seth Parsons, and I'm a professor at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. A recent project I'm working on is actually similar, Margaret, but I'm just finished validating the writing engagement scale, uh, which is for elementary students. We're hoping to test it outside elementary school, but initially we uh, tested it in the elementary schools, and uh, through multiple rounds of administration, we have a scale that uh, is easy to administer. It's only 16 items and uh, gives really strong, valid, and reliable outcomes. So that's exciting. It was recently accepted for publication in The Reading Teacher. Um, and we look forward to using it moving forward. So we that's have great. a scale now that um, measures student writing engagement. I love a good scale, and it's exciting to see that you're you're both working with scales as a way to uh, understand how students are experiencing instruction and aspects of literacy. Uh, so jumping into the book, I uh, I appreciate you, the way that you introduce the entire book is you talk about how when you before you started writing the book, you decided to engage with various educational stakeholders, so folks like principals and teachers, and you just ask, what do you what do you need? What 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 are you struggling with? What are you trying to tackle? What are you wrestling with? Uh, can you elaborate on the insights that you gathered from them about supporting literacy learning well, in schools I'll today? I'll start off that one for boards and, you know, I live kind of in a small, relatively small, I run into principals all the time. I have tons of teacher friends. And I think also Seth and I talked quite a bit about maybe your experiences, Seth, as well. And so just kind of conversationally, just kind of feeling back from the pandemic, like, what do you all need? Like what we used before. And so um, just over time and time again, just through informal conversations or in some of the boards that I'm on, People just sort of said, listen, we just need a different approach. We just need something that's not business as usual. We need to really rethink kind of what we're doing and how we're doing this. And so um, really became just honestly, Jake, just very conversational with people in and out. And I emailed a couple of colleagues at different places and said, what's going on? Like, what are you, what's, what do you think you need right now? So um, I think it's just that relational work and building those partnerships over time um, that I feel like very fortunate to have. Well, uh, this actually happened subsequent to publishing the book, but uh, we have a new dean and she has been very intentional about engaging local school districts. Uh, we live in a heavily populated area, so we have these humongous school districts with uh 20,000 teachers in one school district and uh, serving 200,000 kids. And it's just uh, these enormous uh, school districts. So she, she has brought in um, each of the local districts surrounding this, like 10, 10 school districts. And she's brought in the leaders, the superintendents, the instructional leaders, folks from HR, just to have a mutual conversation about setting up research practice partnerships. Let, let's uh, be intentional about this. We are uh, a large university, a research university in your area, and we don't have any established MOUs other than these pockets. Like There's nothing broad with the College of Education and Fairfax County, for example. Um, so she's been very intentional about doing that. And uh, unsurprisingly, when we have these conversations about what are the most pressing issues today, literacy, especially early literacy, uh, struggling readers, teaching reading to non-native English speakers, the science of reading phenomenon that's taking place. 
uh, those have risen to the top along with other major pressing issues like the teacher shortage and funding and uh, dropout rates in high school because these superintendents and central office folks have this bird's eye view across the whole school system. But uh, literacy is definitely an arm. It is uh, going to be the focus of later this month. Our next one's uh, the late September. Um, but they've asked me to give some remarks to just talk through like what, what George Mason has to offer and what George Mason literacy scholars um, would recommend for them in this sort of pivotal moment uh, with literacy. I agree. It does feel that we are experiencing a moment in literacy and literacy instruction. And I, I think the, the list that you just provided, Seth, is, um, you know, if, if, if we went back five years, 10 years, 15 years, all of those things would probably still have made the list to one degree or another, but it, it, it feels a little different right now. It feel, things feel more dynamic. And similarly, a lot of the things that we're planning to talk about on the, on the show are I, I think there are things that folks have heard before, things like MTSS, things like collaboration, things like intervention. Uh, but what I really appreciate about the text uh, that, that you both wrote is, is you provide a little bit of a fresh take on it, but also a very human, very practical approach to, well, how do we create a vision around what we want our students to attain and what do we believe about our students? And that fresh take, I think that's a good response to the, the dynamics of the, the situation. So if, let's transition to talking a little bit about the book. Uh, you, you open the book also with talking about a cake analogy. Uh, and you use that to describe improving literacy achievement for a school or school reform. Can you elaborate how the involvement of administrators, teachers, families, and communities is analogous to the ingredients uh, in a cake that can well, help so schools So Dr. Succeed. Anthony Burke, uh, he came up with the cake analogy. And so we cite him in the text. And so it's really pivotal. Like just even last weekend, I was actually trying to make a cake. And of course, I was doing a bunch of different other things. And so I inadvertently didn't add enough butter. And so, you know, the cake didn't do what it was supposed to do. It didn't rise. It didn't do what it was supposed to do. So much like with school reform, Dr. Burke talked about how um, it's just like that, right? And so we can think about school reform in that way of baking a cake. So if we don't have the eggs, for example, or in my case, the butter, right? If we don't have the necessary partners to the table, it's not going to rise or it's not going to quite work. And so I love that analogy because it makes so much sense. And, you know, I think if we can kind of, like you said earlier, like if we think about this in a practical sense, we need to look at who the partners are. We need to look at the mix. We need to make sure all ingredients are there, all people are there, all components are there. And we need to make sure we have the right temperature, we have the right tools, the right structures. And I just, I love that imagery of how it really connect with what the work that we do in schools. Because, you know, you can, it's just like teaching and the work we, you know, Seth and I have talked about with adaptive teaching. And, you know, you don't necessarily see all of the work behind the scenes. And so I think, you know, when you have that delicious piece of chocolate cake, right, you don't think necessarily about the butter or the eggs or, um, you know, what all the components that you need, but they all are necessary in order to produce that kind of final, you know, deliciousness. <laughs> and just to build upon that analogy, 
when 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 the analogy is applied to schools, Ooh, yeah. the recipe changes. So the recipe for baking a cake in uh, Idaho is going to be different than the recipe for baking a cake in Fairfax. And that's that's something that uh, I think has served me and Margaret well. We've been writing together since 2008, 2009, uh, when we were still in the doctoral program together. Uh, so here we are, nearly two decades of collaborating and uh, she started her career in Idaho and uh, now in Washington State right next door. But the Pacific Northwest yeah. is far different from the East Coast. And I started my career at George Mason University, where I still am. So we, we've lived in these different locations um, for many, many years. And we've, we've collaborated and collected data and uh, done similar studies where we collect same data in different locations and the populations we serve and you know, Margaret's done this wonderful work with American Indians and local tribes, um, tribal schools in her area. Um, and then I've worked with schools in uh, inner city DC and, uh, you know, high English language populations in uh, Fairfax, Virginia. But that has demonstrated to us that there is a lot of overlap there. There are these principles that we always return to um, in our books that do span locations, but we can't use the exact same recipe with different kids, different cultures, different schools, different histories. Uh, we have to be responsive to the place, to the cultures of the, the students we serve. So if we were to expand that even that. further, I think that's how I would say it is, yeah, you got multiple pieces in the recipe, but the recipe uh, changes based upon the location and the context. And, and I, I love that too, Seth, when we think about just the richness, you know, not to tutor our intolerance, but I love the richness across the work that we've done because I think, I think you're right. It really connects to the specific, unique, you know, contextualized variables in our communities and how, you know, I, I really appreciate that as just a colleague and a friend, you know, and a, as a writing partner as well. It's just, it's such a great way to think about the work, but what it means, it, you know, it really stretches me as a writer to think, yeah, this may work here, but it's not going to work everywhere. And so how do you really think even further when you think about reform and you think about how does it, you know, in Moscow, Idaho might not work in another community. And so I love that about this in the book that we really emphasize the contextualized like racial linguistic um, identities in the communities in which teachers and schools are in. I think, I think sometimes that can get overlooked in school reform. Um, and I really love that you made that deep connection because I, I just think that's so essential and it's it's a critical component. I would add that I feel that's a theme that is pulling from other works that you've you've both done so far. For example, uh, Dr. Parsons, I interviewed you about the principle of effective literacy instruction book that you both were co-editors on a couple of years ago. And Nell Duke in the foreword, she talks about great instruction being like a chef. And I'll I'll just read the paragraph here real quick, but uh, she says, consider a great chef. Their work is more than just the ingredients they select or the technique they use to whisk the batter. It's also the way they put those together, the timing, the coordination, and the respect for each component of the process. Similarly, great elementary literacy instruction is not just about what we teach or the techniques we use to teach it. It's also about the timing, the coordination, and the respect for students that underlies it. And so, uh, you know, that book was very much about what do you do in a, in a classroom? You know, that was teachers with students, 
Um, and, and I think any teacher listening to this podcast will understand that analogy of the chef very, very clearly. Uh, you, you can't put the eggs into a cake after you've pulled it out of the oven, right? That those things have to work together. And I see this book as taking, you know, that principle of being adaptive and responsive to the living, breathing students right here in front of me. But how do we scale that at a school level? How do we, as a faculty of colleagues, how do we align our resources to support all of our students that are that are in our care at our school? And that adaptive component is is huge. We we you know there's there's principles always at play, and um, but but we have to mold and adapt and shave and craft those principles to fit within our our specific context. And so to open up the book, you introduce this cake analogy, and then you start talking very very big and very broad of developing a school action plan. And so with the development of a school-wide action plan to accelerate learning, what are the specific steps that schools can take to generate this plan? And perhaps first, maybe why does a school action plan matter? And then what steps can schools take to create an action plan? Um, so it goes back to my own experiences, right? It's kind of like a roadmap, the GPS, right? If you don't have that, you're never going to get to where you need to go, right? And so Having that um, action plan really centers and makes sure makes sure all voices in the curricular process and the reform process, but it also helps to guide you know guide schools and what they're trying. So um, that's kind of the initial. It's, you don't have a roadmap if you don't have an action plan. How are you really going to get where you need to get going? Um, and so one of the things that we really recommend at first is for for schools to do just an organizational overview and to be honest in that attempt, right? Like, okay, what's the budget? You know. What's actually need do we need in this context with in those specific contexts, right? So like sets with sharing, what's needed here is it going to need even within schools, right? Or even within districts, there's different needs within districts. There's different needs across the state. So if you know state legislators or state people are looking at reform, we have to look at those individual needs. So review the budget, and then we thought about how you have to review resources even down next to the classroom level. So, for instance, if you really want to expand reading and reading motivation and reading engagement, do kids have high interest texts? Do they have culturally responsive texts? Right. What's what are libraries like? So you have to do that inventory and then focus on collaboration and research, just like Seth and I do with any project we ever embark on. As you talk, you email, you talk some more and then you even talk even more. And so you just have to really kind of. Do that work before you even sit down to try to get the plan started. That's what we really highly recommend. And then the first thing that we, the actual step that we outline in the book is then developing visions. And so, you know, we're big fans on visioning. That comes from Jerry Duffy's work. Um, and, you know, he's our mentor in so many ways, a friend and a great colleague. Um, and so this idea about visioning, and I think, Jake, we've had other podcasts on that. Seth and I worked on a lit review and some other work on that as well that we, we talked about. Um, and so you need to develop a vision, right? A school-wide vision action plan with all the stakeholders. So it's not just me, myself, and I and what it is that I want to accomplish in this school. Um, and, you know, it's, it's reflective of all and the community. I think sometimes the community can be overlooked in that way. So we want to make sure that we invite that. So it's a step one, developing visions. Step two, you have to determining and addressing students' needs through goal setting, monitoring, and assessing. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, so on the first level, the school-wide goals. So for instance, look at the school-wide goals. If you're trying to build a more kind of inclusive culture in your school, 
make more time for school-wide SEL strategies or look across, you wanna set school-wide goals. Then you wanna go to the teacher and the grade level. How are assessments used? You know, what are teachers' perspectives on assessment? And I believe we talk about it in this book, but I'll never forget my own experience as a classroom teacher where um, I had a principal and I think she met, of course she met well, she wanted to do what's best for kids. Um, but, you know, she implemented some ideas that had teacher input. The idea was to do some of these practices and it wasn't authentic. It wasn't connected to what we as teachers knew about our kids and our context. And so I think with good intentions, sometimes that teacher and grade level goals can be imposed on teachers. And we want to make sure we include their voices because they know they're, they're right there with students. That's important. And then we also want to, and, you know, really focus deeply on student goals. So if you want to incorporate or, or work on reading achievement, break it down to what does that look like? Maybe that is improving and building upon students' reading stamina, for example. How do you get kids to read more books that are high interest, culturally relevant? How do we engage that? So step two, we got that, right? Step three is the authentic learning experiences. So this connects to what are they doing? Is it authentic? Do they have any agency? Are they, do they have choice in what they're doing? So, you know, it can be from group-based learning that's connected, you know, but you have to have students' interest. It has to be authentic. Step four, engaging teachers in critical reflection. Reflection, And so, you know, I know Seth and I have written about that. Well, you know, such deep reflection can occur and deep change can happen when teachers reflect and they provide their voice and they make changes and they alter what they're doing in the context of, of the, the action plan that we're thinking about. And then broadening literacy learning, we put that as the last step, step five. And so really thinking deeply about not just yourself in a classroom or not just even one school, it's to think about the district. So how can you look district-wide at literacy initiatives? How can you think about school reform, not just your school, but across the district or a neighboring district? What are they doing that can help to inform what it is you're doing? It's to have those partnerships you know, have those talking conversations, you know, looks at the interdisciplinariness of, of schools and also community efforts. Um, and then just that adapted back and assessing and like reevaluating. And, you know, it's kind of that circular process of making sure that you are going back, you know, student goals in September, the same in March, right? And to keep it so, and I think sometimes that's a key ingredient, right? We think about how we great, you know, I've been in these meetings, you know, even in higher ed, right? With great plans, like we're going to go great in September, you know, and then we put that on the shelf and it's never to be looked at again till the end of the year where we say, oh, we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Well, part of it's possibly because you left it on the shelf. And so it's making it kind of a working, livable, readable document that you go back and you kind of reassess and reevaluate and you know, it's it's not something that should be put up. It should be messy. It should have, you know, um, corners, computer, right? You want to have lots of revision to it. And that is a lot of hard work. And that takes considerable investment from, um, you know, I, I think the administration are the folks that are going to be able to align the time and the resources to be able to do that work. But by including teachers, you get a much better output on the other side. Dr. Jim Knight, who does a lot with instructional coaching, uh, I, I really like his work, uh, but he talks about teachers need to have a voice, teachers need to have choice. And um, 
you know, I, we, I think we've all seen the meetings where there's an initiative in September that gets sat on the shelf and then time goes on. And, and that's, that's one of the very challenging thing about working in schools is these things are happening parallel. It's not that things can stop and pause while everyone can rally around and spend a month working on a, a school-wide action plan. The airplane is being built while it's, it's flying and it takes finding slivers of time on a Friday afternoon or before school to pull the faculty together and, and, and to keep working on it. But going back to, you know, what you talked about with, with visioning, I think that's where, that's where the, the bigger picture is able to come and we can, that's when the work becomes really meaningful because we're, we're progressing towards something together and not just an objective that someone put up on a wall of this is what we're, what we're going to do. Um, so I, I, a key facet of this, of, of that kind of envelops these, these steps that you just outlined was implementing adaptive structures within the school action plan. So rather than focusing on specific programs, you're advocating for adaptive systematic structures. Can you explain how something that's adaptive can contribute to effective literacy learning outcomes? So, uh, you know, we've been fortunate to, to be published on that for, for several years now, and that stems back from our work with Jerry Duffy and in and, and our in and our doctoral work. Kind of this idea of right, how do you adapt? And Seth mentioned it in the intro there. How do you adapt for the specific students right in front of you? And it's the same applies with school reform. How do you adapt for the specific population in which you're working with? That changes monthly, changes daily, right? And so I think the adaptive structure idea is to think about um, the need for flexibility in your approach. So um, for instance, the science happening um, across the, the right now. And so, right, how do you carefully and adaptively use what we know about effective literacy instruction to implement those core elements of the science of reading, right? And so we advocate throughout the book and throughout our work that one program is never going to reach anybody, everyone, right? Just doesn't work that way. You know, if we could, the person that won would be a good, you know, gazillionaire. And so need to be really thoughtful and flexible and adaptive with programming, with curricula, with teaching strategies. You know, you have to have that flexibility that throughout your approach when you're when you're thinking about uh, form and also how that's going to fit specific kids in the population, the linguistic abilities and with the students who you're working with. The U.S. population of school-aged children is shifting so dramatically that research findings from 30 years ago may not be as applicable to today's population as it was uh, the population that was assessed back then. So um, the shifting demographics and the growing diversity in the United States is a, a beautiful thing that is enriching uh, who we are and who schools are and what our country looks like and acts like and values. And uh, there's some real strength to that. And we need to make sure that our instruction, our literacy instruction, especially, is responsive to the students we're serving and does follow research-based practice. You know, we are learning continuously uh, through ongoing, repeated, rigorous research, and that should be applied to practice. So I, I am 100% a fan of using scientific research to guide instruction. But we also need to be aware of uh, who our students are and what types of instruction work uh, at what points in development uh, with which students. So instead of being tied to one particular 
approach, we need to be tied to supporting the children in front of us. And that may take a multitude of approaches uh, that we can learn from existing research, but it can't be a lockstep. Uh, kids are just far too different from one another generally and with the shifting cultures and linguistic backgrounds uh, that we have in our schools today. Uh, we can't have a cookie cutter, one size fits all. I spend a lot of time thinking about curriculum and its role in instruction and student outcomes. And my thinking has shifted and, and changed, and I'm sure will continue to. But something I've thought about a lot very recently is everybody's already picking and choosing which parts of the curriculum make it into instruction and, and which parts are being left out. I, that's, I, I think that's a universal facet. And in that aspect, well, if, if everyone's already to a degree picking and choosing the things that make it to showtime, then it's worth giving teachers a bit more ownership over that and, and PLC teams ownership over that to be responsive. Right now, I'm thinking that's, that's the, you know, the sweet spot of, of curriculum is being able to take the curriculum and adapt it is it's kind of the Goldilocks, not too hot, not too cold, but the porridge is just right to be able to meet my students' needs. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, really, that's really powerful. And I think, um, I think more conversation around effective implementation of curriculum and adaptation could be a very powerful counterpart to the current science of reading conversation um, that's, that's happening. So shifting from curriculum to assessment, assessment, I think, is always a, a big topic of conversation. And, you know, typically states will have assessments that they're requiring at, at their level. And then perhaps a, a district wants to have the, you know, an additional assessment, you know, for this, that or the other. And then perhaps there's a school or a PLC. And so by the time you get all the way down to the classroom level, sometimes teachers just feel tested out that there's a lot of assessment going on. Let's let's talk for a minute about the process of what you advocate for, which is conducting an assessment inventory to determine what students are being assessed on and, and why that matters. Sure. So one principle of effective literacy instruction that we've highlighted uh, in our previous book on principles, and then that is woven throughout this book, Accelerated Learning Recovery, um, is the idea of assessment-based instruction. If we're going to be responsive, if we're going to be adaptive, if we're going to um, focus our instruction on the students in front of us, we need to know what it is they know. And we also have abundant research on early intervention, that if we can catch struggling readers early and give them the piece of that recipe to return to our analogy, that they are lacking that prevents them from making the pro progress in reading they need, then we know that we're going to serve them a lot better than kicking the can down the road and not identifying what it is that's the, the gap or the barrier for that particular child or that particular set of children. So assessment is absolutely vital. And I think having that robust data, knowing about early intervention, at times we've gone overboard with the screeners and the assessments. And that's where you hear from kindergarten teachers two months in the school saying, I haven't done anything but assess my little five-year-olds. Part of me is like, well, no, why? Like if we, if we know that they come to school without these skills, they're already starting behind. So let's find out what they know and don't know immediately. Uh, so, so we have that sort of situation. And then in my professional development work with schools, 
uh, working large, like macro approach, looking at states or I've worked with a state that's working with 120 schools, trying to help these particular schools. And then working with a, a county, looking at these 20 elementary schools. Um, we go back to this principle of assessment-based instruction, but there's no real understanding of what takes place within one building. So that's been something that I recommended for the, this sort of school-wide approach is let's get a handle of what assessments, what screeners, what progress monitoring is taking place in the name of literacy and what skills are being assessed and what's being overlooked. Because another thing that it's been a pattern so far in this half hour conversation we've been having is that we're talking about a, a multi-dimensional set of skills that it takes to be a successful reader. So, uh, you know, the Scarborough's rope, which is everywhere uh, currently with the science of reading, shows those multiple components. Or if we look at Nell Duke and Kelly Cartwright's active view, you know, you got four boxes with half a dozen things in each box that these five and six-year-olds have to coordinate to learn how to read. Um, so if one of those is missing or one of those is weak or one of those is not being assessed and therefore not being addressed, then students are slipping between the cracks. So one step to avoid over-assessment and also to make sure you're not, you don't have gaps in your assessment uh, protocols uh, I think it's a good idea to let's, let's just collate, like let's collect and accumulate all the assessments that are given, not the informal assessments, not the kid watching, not the daily conversations, not even the, the unit tests. I want, I want to see what, what are the screeners? What are the quarterly benchmarks? What are the progress monitoring? What's in place for the, you know, talking about intervention and uh, MTSS here shortly, uh, but what assessments drive that, those decisions. Um, but let's get them all on the table and then unpack them and see what skills, what, what at the end of that assessment, when you've done the, you know, you've done the reviewing, you've done the grading, evaluating, what do you get? What does it tell you? Does it tell you about word recognition? Does it tell you about, uh, phonological understanding? Does it tell you about comprehension, vocabulary, fluency? And are those valid and reliable measures? I know um, oftentimes uh, folks have used rate as a proxy for comprehension. And reading rate doesn't tell you anything about comprehension. Uh, so making sure that what is measured is actually measured. And are you, are you assessing everything? So I think it's just a good idea. I don't have any one particular progress in, in thinking about what this might look like in implementation, uh, I think it would be a good idea to start with grade level teams because I think then the grade level teams could work together and they could do their own sort of in-house assessment uh, inventory. And that would be a good exercise for a grade level. And then bringing that all together at like a leadership team, you know, distributed collaborative leadership is another one of our principles presented in this book. Getting together a leadership team of coaches, literacy leaders, uh, and department chair sorts of things and bring them together and then looking across what the grade levels delivered and see, okay, if we're looking at a school and we have all these assessments, are we assessing our kids too much? And what are we assessing too much? What are we assessing too little, too little? And then from that self-assessment, you can then plan 
a efficient, focused, targeted assessment plan across the grade level um, to make sure that it's comprehensively studying uh, or comprehensive gathering what kids know and don't know so we can provide highly effective. I love that, Seth. I mean, and I just I want to build on the analogy again of cooking, but it's like trimming the fat too and figuring out what do we not need? I mean, how many times, you know, I've done, you know, I've done so many observations where there'll be an assessment, a pre-assessment, and then it's the same idea they do a post-assessment and it's just put aside. And so teachers don't even have the time or the bandwidth to do those weekly assessments to review them and then plan again for the next Monday. And so do we really need that many assessments, right? Do we need those weekly assessments that are looking at those individual um, skills? Maybe for some students, yes, that's important. But, you know, to, and I think that's a, a key ingredient of a key component of doing that assessment inventory is figuring out what you don't need as well as what you do need. Um, because sometimes too much is too much. Yeah, I uh, assessment's so tricky to wrestle with because there are hard decisions that sometimes need to be made. And the risk of over-assessment is you're pushing out instructional time. There's an economy of instructional minutes, and that, and that, that that's very precious. And so if the time spent, if you're spent assessing learning, you're not instructing, you're not teaching, you're not supporting learning. And if if an assessment is being delivered and like, uh, you know, like you mentioned, Margaret, of watching an assessment, you know, every Friday we're doing the assessment. Uh, well, if you do an assessment every Friday for your whole year, that's 20% of your instructional time gone. And so if the assess if that assessment isn't being used to drive instruction, then I would argue and say, what is its purpose then if it's not being used to to form instruction? And that's where hard conversations, uh, you know, can happen. But in the end, the you know sort of the approach I've taken is there's there's no summative assessment, uh, even the quote unquote summative assessment at the end of the year or whatever that still should be used to drive instruction. And so, you know, I would advocate for as as you're making an assessment inventory, the the flip side of that is a really clear understanding of what do we do with these data to support future instruction to be adaptive. Because if that can't be clearly articulated, then that assessment can't be effectively utilized to to benefit your your students. So, um, and that that's that's tricky. Like uh, Dr. Parsons mentioned, there's there's a lot of strands of Scarborough's rope where you take a look at the active view, or there's lots of different models out there. Um, but but being but trying to really cover those uh, it very concretely, it, it it does get tricky. And so this is where I think teams and schools and districts really need to have their their A game on um, so that way we can maximize our instructional time uh, to to accelerate learning for all students. Seth, you already hinted at this, but uh, a key component to all of this is having a, a team of teams or shared leadership within the school-wide initiative. Um, so can you suggest perhaps some key teams to establish within a school what their uh, respective focuses might be, and then uh, different ideas of compositions for these teams that are working to implement the school action plan. And that's that, that's real hard. I mean, it's difficult, and a lot of these questions are um, because the answer is it depends. You know, it really depends on the school makeup, the school composition. Um, like I've worked in Title I schools where they had... Um, 
not a surplus, but a good number of coaches and support staff that they got through Title I funds. So there's a math coach, there's an instructional coach, there's two reading specialists, there's a reading coach. And then uh, I've worked at a school that was, um, you know, high needs, but not, uh, didn't hit that Title I threshold that did not have the the uh, same funding for extra personnel that the other school did in spite of uh, some real needs with about half the school. Um, so what a leadership team might look like is going to vary and be very idiosyncratic to particular schools. But I do think that any leadership team should include the principal. You know, you got to have the head, the leader of the school, uh, but it should also be represented by teachers and then have representatives in that leadership area. Uh, you want to make sure that you have teacher leaders, uh, those who are going to be the next generation of instructional coaches and administrators, um, and just exceptional teachers uh, that have so much knowledge to offer. But then you also need the uh, the coaches and the administrators that take that bird's eye view uh, instead of just that that myopic classroom view. Uh, and I'll, I'll turn it over to Margaret to elaborate on, on this idea of team. So, teams yeah, in the text, we, I, you know, I outlined like we, how to develop a literacy leadership team. Now, that's like the core of this um, central to kind of connecting all of these different individuals. Right. So you want to have a literacy leadership leadership team at the school. OK. And so within that, you have teacher leadership networks. Right. Those are what, you know, Dr. Bean talks of professional capacity. And so. It's this this network of teacher leaders that develop that pedagogical knowledge, and it's given they're given that space and that flexibility to develop as a community of learners. So you want to have that teacher leadership network as part of that overriding literacy leadership team. Um, then you want to have literacy coaches, right? That Seth just referred to, right? You also want to have assessment teams. So looking at the inventory, what do we need? What do we not need? How can we be more flexible? Do we really need to do this every week? Could we pare this down so that there is that more instructional time that we can give to students? And then we talk a lot in the book about how developing like a cur curriculum adoption team. And so to, you know, especially right now with the culture and what's happening across schools, we really want to make sure that we have multiple constituents at the table when it comes to adopting curriculum, right? It's so vital. Um, we really want to make sure we have community members. We want to have a diversity bandwidth of, of a variety, a variety of um, stakeholders when we're thinking about curriculum. And then we also kind of advocate in the text in this chapter um, for this idea of accelerated learning teams. And so to me, this is a new idea when I was doing research for this particular part is just to, and it just, it's so intuitive, which is why I love it, right? Um, and it's so practice oriented. It's so real life what you would, you, what you do anyway as an individual. So Accelerated learning teams looks at not just within the school but and the neighboring school, you know, social media, right? How can I build this accelerated learning team that focuses, let's say, on a problem? So like maybe you have a K-2 learning team in the district or at the state or however you want to look at that, focusing in on a specific area, specific problem of practice that you want to go deeper in. It could be around not just with who students who might be, you know, quote unquote, struggling, but maybe students who are, or, or, you know, accelerating. And how do we meet those specific needs of the populations of the students that you have in front of them? So 
thinking about learning teams a little bit more broadly to connect, not just, it's not just a grade level. We want to think across grade level, across school. So maybe it's a third, fourth, fifth team to look at in and, you know, the ins and outs, what's happening in third that can inform fourth and so on. How, how can you think about that? So I think sometimes we could be siloed, right, as teachers and, and even as researchers, right? We can kind of get in our lane and just do what we need to do. But having that also flexibility and that flexible approach to our thinking with reform and, and, and developing collective visions across grade levels. So I think that that's a really critical component that, you know, we can get lost in because we want to have that grade level time, right? We, we sit down and we focus. We just look at our grade level because that's enough. And I agree that's enough, but we also want to make sure that we don't add this on as another add-on for teachers. We want to provide time. We provide, you know, provide resource, you know, I'm sure all of us have been in districts where they hire a lot of, you know, they hire some outside constituent to come in and do this. Like, you know, I don't, I'm sure it's awesome, like an awesome one day, but it costs thousands and thousands of dollars. And all I could think of, wow, we have so many talented teachers principals and leaders in our own community that we, or alumni, right, that we could invite them to come and be, you know, um, leading us be a heck of a lot more authentic, right? And be, you know, I think the idea of raising up the voices of teachers is so vital right now as we experience a teacher shortage and, um, but teachers shouldn't do it for free, right? I think districts, if you can spend that much money on Outside, you can spend that much money in-house. And so I really advocate for that um, as a vital, as central, as important to this, this book and also reform is that we really want to make sure we don't just do an add-on also for administrators. We want to make sure we provide the time, the money, and the resources to make this successful. Or, you know, back with the cake, right? It's not going to rise. It's not going to work. I think that's fantastic in thinking about groups of their teams of teams working together within a school and that idea of shared leadership across the school. Um, that's where the buy-in comes on the teacher end. And uh, there's real power in passive following versus active engagement with a, with a process. And so when there's groups of teams working within a school, there's shared ownership, there's shared voice. And now you have folks who are wanting to work together towards towards the greater good. And that is time consuming and the and that is time, you know, outside of a teacher's contract to be able to do that. And it's important to remember though that teamwork might be a slower process. It's a lot easier for the smart person in the room to say, let's do this and to, you know, bulldoze onward. Um, but you know, the the power that a team can offer over over single person trailblazing is uh you know is i mean it it doesn't even it doesn't even compare but it might be a a slower burn you know to get there um and and so with that this idea is is runs as a thread throughout your book as well and is very complementary to this idea of shared leadership across the school but thinking about school community partnerships uh, partnering with community organizations can be a really powerful way to accelerate literacy learning um, how can such collaborations enhance the educational experience? And then what are some examples of common partnerships that, that you've seen? Sure. Thank you for that question. This is uh, something that's 
near and dear to my heart because it's something I've engaged in uh, since since my doctoral work, um, especially in school university partnerships, and that's something that has uh, that drew me to George Mason uh, when I was job hunting uh, years and years ago. Was they have a, a professional development school model where they build authentic partnerships between the elementary education program and schools and uh our faculty spend one day a week um in a in a partner school over multiple years so you really can build some genuine trusting relationships uh between um a university-based uh teacher educator and a school-based educator along with uh, teacher candidates who are who are there to learn and uh, there is this uh, triad of learners all focused on helping uh, students learn better. So the school university partnership model uh, through teacher residencies and professional development networks is um, it, it's really hot in teacher ed right now. And I think appropriately so we, we've for too long this gulf between colleges of ed and the K-12 schools. Um, and there, there's been like a lack of trust, you know, Universities have far too often used uh, schools as like the training ground for their students instead of engaging authentically. And at the same time, it's hard for schools to trust universities because they're over there in the ivory tower and come by once in a while and tell us what to do. Uh, so if we leave that behind, we're, we're on this together. Like we have the same goal. We're all here to help children uh, succeed and achieve. Uh, you know, and from our lens, uh, and literacy uh, achievement and uh, support their literacy learning. But then also the communities, uh, schools are, tend to be within the, you know, a local community. And there's, there's this opportunity for schools to be a hub of the community that uh, welcomes the local community around. So teacher or teacher, parents, uh, family members, guardians, um, grandparents feel comfortable being at the school and welcome at the school. Uh, because unfortunately, especially in some of these, uh, underprivileged, uh, communities, uh, people of color, school has been a place of harm historically, instead of a place, a safe place of, uh, growth and support. Uh, and we need to change that in the way we work with the local community. When I was working at a school in uh, DC, it was a charter school. And one of our uh, initiatives in this year long, well, multi-year uh, professional development partnership was to engage community uh, business leaders to say, hey, you know, if we're invested in this neighborhood, we're invested in this place, this town, uh, we should invest first in the school. And uh, we attended the business leaders of this town. They had a community business leaders meeting once a month where business leaders get together and talk about current issues in the community and what they as business leaders can do. And we went and we, we gave our spiel about, you know, we're starting this new literacy initiative at the school, which is in your community. And you know, we're seeking support and possibly tutoring opportunities after school. If there's volunteers, uh, you know, also welcome any funds. We're trying to do a book drive. So students have books at home 
And uh, their response was interesting. And they came back. I'd only been working with the school for two years. And they said, you know, a decade ago, the principal used to come to this meeting every month. And we used to provide all sorts of support. Uh, but then the leadership changed and we never heard from you all again. And we've been here to help, but no one's come ask. Uh, and, and I thought that that was interesting and telling. And we sort of tucked our tails and said, oh, we didn't know that history. And uh, you, you, can, you can bet that the principal would be at the next business leaders uh, uh, meeting as well. So it wasn't, it wasn't as simple as, hey, cut us a check. They did a modest check to buy some books. But it was also, hey, come and engage with us. Like we want to know what's going on in that school and what we can do. Uh, but you got to meet this halfway. Uh, and that, that was really telling to me that the, the business leaders, you know, bankers and things like that, they want to help. They want to know what's going on in their neighborhood schools right in their backyard. Um, and schools not have a responsibility, but it would behoove schools to tap into those resources because they, too, want the school to be successful. You know, parents who send their kids there want it to be successful. Uh, even people that don't have kids there, they want to have a vibrant school that it's safe, kids are learning, it gets a good grade on the, uh, you know, the school ratings uh, that people check out when they're house hunting. So there is this, uh, this sort of holistic communal feel that can be cultivated at a school and that supports literacy learning because you have more people invested in what's taking place in the school. And if we as educators and university teacher educators can build these sort of unilateral. There's not one that's above the other. Like there has to be trusting equal relationships among these various stakeholders, because I've learned in my time that there are more interested stakeholders. I love that, than Seth. This. I love that thinking. It, like, I think also in the book, we talk about um, the idea too about expanded learning time. And so that was, I think it kind of really connects deeply to that. So when schools are thinking about, you know, building those partnerships and kind of what might that look like? And I have to admit, and, you know, I'm a school advocate, a public school advocate, and I love it. But sometimes it makes me so sad when I see those tutoring experiences, like in the summer or after school or before school or even during school, right? It's so, it's painful for the students, right? They are fully aware that they're being, that they're, you know, quote unquote, struggling, right? So they're in that context and they're receiving the same kind of instruction that didn't work for them in the first place. and so. It just, it's a snowball effect. And so I think we want to be really intentional about what expanded learning time looks like, especially in school and out of school. And when we build those partnerships, when it comes to tutoring and in the book, we outline a bunch of quality indicators for what does effective tutoring look like. But, you know, kind of think about the goal, the rule that I always talk with my pre-service teachers and any time I work with teachers, if you don't want to do it, it's a good chance your students don't want to do it either. And so if you're bored to tears by reading something seven or eight times over and over, there's a good chance your students might feel the same way. Ask them, right? And so, um, you know, we talk about that expand, what that could look like. Um, connecting with meaningful and authentic tasks, right? Like, um, you know, I with um, some of the local indigenous tribes that, that are, are local and specific to the Pacific Northwest, but you know, I was, it was wonderful to be, to be involved in programs where it was local and specific and driven by teachers and the community. Um, you know, we, the teachers and um, their own dual language texts and, you know, just, I think really creative and innovative 
Um, things can come out of tutoring programs that don't maybe look like the same way we've done tutoring programs in the past, right? And so meaningful and authentic, culturally and linguistically rich to those individual students in front of you communities. Um, and in the book, we also sample like an, uh, a weekly plan of what that might look like uh, for an effective like summer tutoring program built around this idea about what's authentic, what's local and specific. Um, and so I, I just wanted to kind of build on that idea that you know, tutoring, it can be really effective, but it can also be really harmful, right? If we, I mean, or ineffective, maybe not harmful, but just ineffective. And if we're going to do tutoring, we don't want to make it so that it's, um, it's a lot of resources, it's a lot of personal personnel and, and, and so forth. And so don't throw out those ideas about what's effective with literacy instruction and be like, oh my gosh, I need to like do this tutoring program to the T and how it fits. Keep those adaptive principles in place because it needs to be motivating. It needs to be engaging. You know, it needs to give kids a sense of agency in their work. Um, we can re shift that kind of narrative when we think about supporting kids with reading and, and writing and literacy. You know, it doesn't have to be a deficit perspective, right? We can build upon what students can do instead of what they can't do. And so I think that's kind of the cornerstone of, of what the extended learning time should look like, um, expanded learning time should look like when we think about the tutoring and also community engagement. And that, that sort of leads to this question that I don't know if you're going there next or not, but I'm taking us there, uh, Jake, about the MTSS. And uh, Margaret's talked about, about, about tutoring. And uh, you, you were asking, what do you see schools doing well with MTS, MTSS and what, what are schools not doing so well? And uh, the things that I was thinking that we do do well is I think we do do a good job of identifying students that do uh, need extra support. And I think that we do good to provide small group explicit teaching for intervention for those students that need that tier two additional layer of support. Those are things that through the RTIs shift into MTSS, through the, that, uh, that understanding and ensuring that students get high quality instruction before, before they ever uh, even considered for uh, special education services has has been a, a game changer, so to speak. But as Margaret was alluding to earlier, what we don't do so well in intervention settings is attend to students' cultural backgrounds. Uh, very rarely do I ever see culturally relevant intervention. Uh, oftentimes they're they're prepackaged uh, and uh, take no. No consideration of the student's linguistic, cultural, home lives, interests, passions, none of that is tapped. Uh, and likewise, I don't know that intervention pays much attention to motivation or engagement. With students in uh, tier two instruction, there, there's a sense of urgency, and I love that. There needs to be a sense of urgency, but it's like we have to get students this skill now, and we need to have that, but we also need to say, how can we use what we know about effective instruction to implement this uh, intervention? And we know that explicit teaching works. So keep the explicit teaching, um, but let's do it in a way that's relevant to the children and that's engaging and motivating. And uh, Jake, I know you know Chase and uh, good friends with him. And I think he's, uh, he's really masterful at this. He can take um, pretty dull... Uh, you know, skills that need to be taught through rote. Sometimes you just have to teach a kid how to do it. 
But then he goes and makes up a story about a booger or something. So kids love it because then they're, they're laughing and they're having fun because they're talking about uh, toots and boogers. Um, but he is focusing on who those children are and how I can hook them in and then give them the skills and the practice they need. But the skills and the practice doesn't have to be with boring, uh, dry, every day, the cat sit on the mat stuff. Let's do what makes kids giggle and roll around on the carpet with laughter. Uh, and then that can be the right activity. Um, but I think that's where we're, we're really lacking is we don't focus on motivation and engagement in those intervention settings. And we certainly don't focus on uh, providing culturally real, relevant, culturally sustaining pedagogy. Yeah, absolutely. I guess what, what you're providing there, Seth, is this idea that we don't have to pick and choose between effective instruction and enjoyable <laughs> instruction. Uh, and uh, you're referencing Chase Young, and uh, we were working on a project with students. Uh, they were doing repeated readings, and we, we included a poem in there, and it, uh, you know, the aliens have landed, they're here, and it, you know, and it goes through the aliens and how scary they are, and they're at your school is how it ends, and they all got job as teachers. And uh, just things like that, and the, the the students, you know, I think it's funny. You know, I, I mean, it just it's it's funny, and it's and I so and and that's I think a, a horizon of where what research could work harder to incorporate, and that's where some of the scales that you've both worked on can really be, I think, extremely valuable in helping triangulate data. Um, but you know, may, developing intervention that um, is instructionally giving, but also life and soul giving as as well. And I, I think especially here for, uh, you know, adolescent, upper elementary, middle school interventions where, you know, if they've, if they've been doing intervention for year over year over year, it can be hard on everyone. And so thinking being creative there, I, I think really matters. And I'll comment back on the school community partnerships as well. I didn't realize that I had skipped the MTSS question. So uh, thanks for your your sharp eye, Dr. Parsons. But you know, when I when I was reading the book and I started thinking back on school community partnerships that I've seen, um, you know, they they can play such a vital role, but it's it can be a, this a, oftentimes a sort of background role that you know isn't in the front and center as flashy, but it's doing a lot of good. Um, you know, I was thinking, uh, you know, back when I was a teacher, um, in the in our school district, there was a donor, an anonymous donor within the community that worked with the school district to set up a little pantry in each school so that food scarcity wasn't something that what what students would would have to would have to face and i was able there were there were students i was able to access and use that with and uh you know another example i thought of was our local library was like three blocks away from the school and i was working with my students on uh, near the end of the school year of let's get you ready for fifth grade. I want you in some really great, very fun, very enjoyable books over the summer. And we would walk over to the library and the librarian would show us around and here's how you get a library card. And here's let's look at some books that are available. And the librarian there was just absolutely, you know, thrilled, you know, that we would bring the students over there and, and look through it. And there were kids that, you know, rolled their eyes and I've been to the library a million times, but those were the kids that needed the summer reading the least, right? So, um, and, and I would do, I, I called it the summer six and we would plan out six books that they would be able to read over the summer. And um, and that was really powerful. And a, a third example I thought of, of a community one, this was with middle schoolers and trying to support middle school math outcomes, especially, especially with multilingual students. And middle school math intervention 
you know, math's not in my lane, but uh, that's a hard sell for a lot of teenagers to come in outside of school hours to work on, on, on math intervention, but they were able to partner with a community member or a community organization to do drone soccer as part of it, which, and I didn't even know like drone soccer is a thing, but they're like little flying drones that, and one of the drones is the ball and, you know, you play soccer. And so that was able to work in tandem with being this hook to, okay, I'll go do drone soccer and I can get math in it. I can get math support as well. And uh, just to to help with that engagement piece for a population that that needed extra support um, that, you know, to develop in math. So those school community partnerships, I, I think it will, you both labeled it well in saying there's groups and organizations out there to partner with and that it might take time to build partnerships. But those folks in the community, they're they're there. They're committed. They're not going anywhere. They're They're going to be there 10, 15 years down the road. And so it's worth building that that community. Um, so we, we've covered so much ground and, and I really would, would recommend folks, you know, check out the book, um, because it does, it does go a lot deeper into all of these ideas, but, uh, so, so some final guiding principles. So, um, Dr. Vaughn, in the book, you talk about a recent trip to the beach and that, uh, that, that provides a, a little analogy for us to think of some final guiding principles. Can you talk about your your trip to the beach and what what principles that oh, allows I, us to I draw love that. from. Oh, I love that, and it, it, it's really it really happened, and it was it was kind of funny, but it was right in writing this book that that this happened, and I thought, wow, that's such a, it says it's so connected to what can happen in schools when we think about reform. And so, you know, my family and I, you know, we're about I think it's about six or eight hours away from the the beach, and we're over in Washington, in, in Oregon, and so. Um, you know, it's this whole idea. You can't see the forest um, for the trees idea. So we had everything packed and, you know, I had everything, everything, right? Like, you know, multiple things of clothing and for all the kids and everything was ready, all ready to go. And we're there and we get to Cannon Beach and I'm like, yes, we're there. We got this. The kids are like, yeah, we want to go. We want to like get in the water. And I'm like, great. And then, of course, what did we all forget? Our the swimming gear, right? And so no goggles, no swim trunks, nothing like no swimsuits at all. And so I thought that was so apropos to what can happen, right? And so, you know, as much as you want to perhaps just focus in on extended learning time or focus deeply on tutoring, well, you can't just focus on that aspect and not do the other components that we, you know, we specifically outline in the book. I mean, we spent a lot of time researching what does effective school reform look like? What doesn't work and what does work? And we try to really hard to summarize those key principles in the book. And so um, don't get caught out by not having your swim trunks, right? Or, you know, make sure that you, you see the vision, you have the vision, you kind of reassess and regroup and kind of go back and think about it. You have all those necessary components. So you know where you're going to, you can see the forest, right? But you can also see the individual trees in front of you. You know, you can get a pulse on teacher burnout, you know, too much, too little, right? Is it, do we really need to have this extended professional learning during the one day that student, you know, teachers are trying to prep for doing report cards, right? So really looking at that individual specific, right? The culture that you have in your school and with the students so that you can see what you have, right? And then also looking down the road to see what you need. So in the case of the, the swimming, right? And the, the beach trip, 
making sure you have what you need, making sure you have the swim gear, right, to go swimming actually when you get there. And so I just loved that idea because it just seemed to fit so well with how we think about school reform. We can get so caught up in one aspect. Kids may be struggling or we get so focused, which rightly so, we're really, we want to build student achievement. We want to focus in on that. But if we focus too tightly on that and don't really look at the structures and the systems and the adaptability that we need to kind of make it work, we're going to lose in the end. We're not going to see where we need to go and what needs to get done. That's the connection to my my beach trip, which we eventually did get our swim stuff. But um, it, it was funny. When we came home, it was all neatly on the table where we had act. So, I mean, that's I think it goes back to the action plan, right? Like that's kind of that same idea, right? Pull it out, kind of lay it out. You know, don't set it away so that you're having, you know, neatly set aside. You want to make sure you incorporate it and kind of revisit it. Absolutely. And I, I think if I would add on to anything of that, these these systems and everything we've talked about that are sort of outside of instruction, they're all meant to support instruction in the same way that checking the tires and driving the hours and hours to get to the beach and paying for the fee for the beach and, and, and attaining lodging. You know, those were not the central goal. Those were all means to an end of of getting your family to the beach. And any one of these that we've talked about can go down a rabbit hole of becoming overly bureaucratic or or Byzantine and and being able to serve as an end unto itself rather as a means to a different end. And and that takes um, you know, all of this this takes work. So for folks out there that are, you know, engaged in this work, uh, you know, my hat is off to you of this is hard work, but it, it is very worthwhile work. And I appreciate both of you being willing to take time out of your schedule to come and and talk with us about accelerating literacy learning. Uh, final question before we go: uh, What do you each see that is going well in 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 literacy instruction right now? What what's filling your cup? I had another answer prepared, um, but when I when I you just ask it and when I think about it in that way, what's filling my cup? I think it's the teachers. I think teachers are going right well. Well, right now, teachers have been through the ringer with COVID, school shuts downs, uh, the like societal response to that, the division of the complaints and blaming teachers and some loving teachers more because of what they did at home and others uh, questioning the efficacy. Teachers have learned that, you know, they have the perseverance to stick with it and show up every day for kids. And that is really heartening. And now we have a new sort of wave um, entering schools with new initiatives, new curricula being rolled out, new standards being adopted. And I'll tell you what, teachers, they face it with smiles and energy, and they do it for the children. And I'm just amazed at, at, uh, at what I'm seeing in classrooms today in spite of it all. Uh, so teachers, if you're listening, I thank you. And uh, we'll keep we'll keep working hard because we see you working hard. And the kids Yeah, I would echo that too. Just give the teachers and, and schools, you know, they've been the consistent guiding light through the pandemic and beyond. And, you know, fall is definitely my favorite time of the year because I get to regroup and see the magic that happens with teachers and schools. And, and also a shout out to principals and 
the literacy coaches and also the specialty teachers that maybe sometimes we can overlook easily because they're not necessarily, you know, um, part of other kinds of conversations that we want to try to include them in the work. I think, you know, just I think just schools, public schools, I mean, they it's just I'm such a huge fan um, that. And I think. Um, yeah, I mean, teachers, of yeah, of course, they're our love. Like, I think that's, you know, where we both came from or we all came from, right, is from our, from teaching and the teaching profession. Um, so I think that and the flexibility that we can I continue to see um, and the grace in which and the positivity that that schools. I mean, I, I really am in awe if I'm if I'm really honest, because it's it just seems like things are kind of becoming even more restrictive in some places around the country. And um, I'm just in awe. That's all I can say. Yeah. So keep it up. And um, we're your biggest fans. <laughs> Dr. Margaret Vaughn and Dr. Seth Parsons, thanks for joining us on the Teaching Literacy Podcast. Yeah, thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. A great big thanks to Dr. Margaret Vaughn and Dr. Seth Parsons for joining uh, me on the show today. I learned so much from them, and there was just so much fantastic conversation. There was a lot of information from the book that, that was left on the cutting room floor that didn't make it into the conversation. So if you appreciated what we talked about, uh, grabbing a copy of the book would probably be worth your time. I have a big picture takeaway around what it takes to really improve our schools to support student learning outcomes. And my first thought is that this thought of how it's ongoing work. Uh, I'm a fan of evidence-based practice. I'm, I'm a student of learning more about evidence-based practice. But one of the limitations of research is that it is a snapshot of a specific point in time, that any study has a time that it began, it commenced, and a time that it ended. And so sometimes what gets lost in the conversation there is how this is really a process that is intended to be ongoing, that it's not this one time we're going to make this big push for a school action plan, but it's something that at least initially, yeah, is going to have a high amounts of time to invest in. But over time, it has to be pruned and maintained and revisited over and over and over again to really maintain its viability. And if you look at the school around you, what teachers are at that school this year that weren't there last year? And do those teachers, do they have immediate buy-in to this school action plan that, that you and your colleagues spent blood, sweat, and tears to create? You have buy-in because you were part of that process, but your new colleagues at the school, whether they're brand new or from a different school, they don't have that. And so it has to be enveloped and, and them folded into the process and being able to do the same process to have a voice and a choice. And, you know, thinking of when administration changes the building, there's, there is turnover within schools. And, and even if there wasn't turnover within, within schools, it's important for a school to have a direction that it's headed and for it to have a clear vision of this is how we want to support our students and this is how we're going to do it. All of these other things, like like uh, Dr. Vaughn mentioned with her trip to the beach, that in the end, they, they serve the purpose of the beach, right? All these other things should be in service of our students. So this is an ongoing process. Now, if your school doesn't have it, yes, it has a definite start point, but hopefully it's not this one big push, but it's 
small, consistent things over time that can get traction and build. And, and that's very hard to do. Uh, sometimes in education, it just feels like we're getting whiplash from one direction to another direction to another direction, which makes it hard to do these things that we talked about on the show today. But it also makes what we talked about that much more important. And so that way you have a, a lens and a way to weigh and evaluate all the other things that are, are causing the whiplash back and forth. My second point of conversation, and this is really the flip side of what I just talked about, but is, is how hard of work this is to do. And it's, it's time-consuming work. And one of the realities of being in the classroom is the lion's share of your time is spent in front of students, which is great. That's where we should be, is getting face time with students and instruction. However, on the back end, that means that, that time to keep the machine running and to improve it over time that's often scraps of time, a half hour there, half hour there, here, an hour after school there. And so it's really challenging to be able to do the level of rigor that's really required to have this be a school-wide initiative. Uh, it's very challenging to do. So my hat's off to educators who are trying to work with their colleagues and work with their school to build a better support system to make sure that our students are acquiring the literacy, knowledge, and skills and achievement they need to be successful in future years. I'm a fan of Revolution's podcast, Mike Duncan's uh, podcast. If, if you're a person of history, I highly recommend checking it out. But one of the characters he talks about in Revolution's podcast is Simone Boulevard, who was a revolutionary in the South American Wars for Independence in the early 1800s. And Simone Boulevard is purported to have said something similar to the fact of, those who have served the cause of revolution plow the sea. And he, and he just talks about how hard of work it is to do what he was doing. He, you know, he likened it to plowing the sea. And sometimes that's often how we might feel as educators, that we are out there trying to plow the sea. But it's, it's good work. It's worthwhile work. And, and if we do it right, it's investment that we can collaborate and make good decisions now that are going to pay dividends down the road, an initial investment of time that's going to help us down the road. That's all I have for you today. Remember to subscribe to the podcast, to leave a review or share with a friend. Uh, we really appreciate all the listeners that are out there. Thank you for being part of this community. This is Jake with the Teaching Literacy Podcast. And until next time, let's work together to make reading and writing instruction even better.